MacCast, Sunday, August 14th, 2022. This episode of the MacCast is brought to you by ZocDoc. More on them later in the show. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Been a little while since we've had a discussion, sat down and talked about all things Apple, Mac, the goings-ons and happenings in our little Apple community. I hope you are having a great week and things are going well for you. You know, normally I don't talk too much about personal stuff here on the show and i'm going to make a little exception today because it has been a little while since we talked so if you're not interested in that and i totally get that and you want to get right to the mac news you can kind of skip this little part but i figured you know it was worth mentioning why it's been a little while since we've been on the show uh you know i've been doing this podcast for about 17 years now i think we're going on 18 years probably the longest job that i've ever had longest single job kind of been in the same career for a while but Regardless, uh, you know, I just have gotten to the point, and this is actually part of what prompted this recent move to South Dakota, where I'm just trying to focus a little bit more on family and some other things in life, and frankly, just needed a little bit of a break, needed a little time off, and decided I was going to take that. I'm trying to get a little more relaxed and a little more out of the rat race and all of that stuff. A lot of people have asked, you know, why did you move recently? People are a little bit confused by that because we had the wonderful, lovely weather in California and it can't be beat. I totally give you that. But looking to slow down a little bit, get into a little more relaxed lifestyle, a little better, maybe attitude, a little less stress. And this all goes into that. So I took a little, you know, I think much needed break. I've taken little breaks here and there with the show, but for the most part, put out a show about every week for (laughs) almost 18 years now. So I took that little break. It was a little unplanned, but did it, and I feel much better for it. And you might be able to hear that in my voice now. So that's what was going on. Just wanted to talk to you about that and let you know. And I appreciate a few people reached out and just said, hey, are you okay? What's going on? And I love that. That is why I love this community. That's why I do this show is because of you. There's a lot of people that care, and I really, really want you to know that was greatly appreciated. So thanks for that. Uh, But I think we need to get into some Mac news and information and hints and tips and tricks and all that fun stuff. We've got a great show for you. Not a lot going on. As you know, we're in that summer lull, that, that time period between Worldwide Developer Conference and the fall announcements, right? We're we're gearing up for the fall announcements. So as you might imagine, we have a lot of news and updates on what might be happening this fall, specifically with the iPhone. We're also going to get into some Apple TV Plus news because that's always ongoing. And then we have a bunch of information about possible new products that might be coming beyond the iPhone update. So again, not a ton of news, but we do have some fun things to get into. And then I have to say... I think on the last episode of the MacCast, we built out what I'm calling the MacCast bat signal, thanks to a listener. And we now have a shortcut, a Mac and iOS shortcut that you can use to request help from the MacCast. And boy, did you guys use that thing. I was surprised. I wasn't sure, but I got a ton of requests for help. So we're going to help a bunch of people today. We're going to get into uh, how to hide our files on Mac OS, we're going to try to help somebody out with a mysterious issue of, uh, I'm calling it the mysterious jumping cursor issue, and then also videos in group messages and some troubleshooting there. I don't have uh, all the answers, but I'm hoping that some of you in the community can maybe help us out. And that's what the bat signal, their MacCast bat signal is all about. So it should be a good episode. I say we just dive right in. We're going to get into some iPhone news. So it seems like this year, Apple wants to give you more reasons to go pro with your iPhone 14 purchase. And don't worry, they're going to apparently also give you the privilege to pay for that as well. Yeah, we're talking about 
potential price increases. Now, one difference between the iPhone base models that we've kind of already covered and has been in the rumors is that the iPhone 14 and the iPhone 14 Max, and yeah, remember, this year the Mini, the iPhone 13 Mini, is going to be replaced by a Max, so we're going from small phone size to a larger phone size. What we do know is that they're, it's sounding like going to stick with last year's A15 chip from the iPhone 13, so they're not going to go with the A16 this year in the entry-level models of the iPhone. They're going to reserve that for the Pro models, or at least that's what the rumors say. But don't worry too much, because if you believe the latest leaks from Shrimp Apple Pro, they're claiming that there will still be some improvements over the previous A15 processor. Now, one big improvement that we are expecting is more memory, uh, taking it from 4 gigabytes to 6 gigabytes. But they also say there should be some performance tweaks to the A15 chip as well. And, and they also claim that there could be a smaller, more efficient modem in there. So 5G modem, and that should help with battery life and all those sorts of things. So we have that. And sources like Bloomberg have also previously indicated that this year's A15 processor could be a quote-unquote variant. So maybe Apple you know, gives it a slick new marketing term like A15X or something like that. We haven't really heard that, but they could tweak it a little bit and kind of give it a new moniker, be slightly tweaked. It's not going to be the same jump that we'd see with the A16, but should be good enough. And, you know, the A4, A15, an amazing processor. I don't think anybody's going to say that the iPhone 13 is a slouch in any way or the iPhone 13 Pros for that matter. But we have that going on. The ELEC also said that the displays in the Pro models will be getting Samsung's, quote, latest and most advanced material OLED display materials. So indicating that the Pro models are going to probably have slightly better displays than the entry-level models. Uh, they say the non-Pro editions are going to be using lower-tier OLED panels. Although, again, if you look at the current OLED panels that Apple uses in their products, they are pretty amazing. So a lot of this stuff is really, I think, in a lot of ways, semantics. I think most consumers are not going to notice the differences. And there, of course, is going to be plenty of enhancements and improvements in this year's complete lineup of iPhones, I think, to appeal to a broad range of users. So none of these are deal breakers, but just things to be aware of if you're thinking about, hey, am I going to go with the base level model if I'm upgrading? I'm going to go with the Pro. What's going on there? Right? That's why we kind of talk about this stuff. So uh, non-Pro editions, maybe slightly lower panels. It was already previously leaked that the Pro models exclusively are going to be offering things like ProMotion and possibly an always-on display option, kind of like the Apple Watch. Uh, and hints of an always-on mode even showed up in the latest iOS simulator on the iOS betas. And basically, it looks like what Apple's thinking is they're going to kind of have a desaturated, simplified mode when the iPhone is asleep, almost kind of like a black-and-white mode. So you'll still be able to read things like the time and some other things. It's not clear if you'll be able to see message notifications, but basically your wallpaper kind of fades out and goes away, and you get this really simplified desaturated mode that's probably going to use a lot less battery, right? That's the whole point, and that's probably how they're going to achieve this always on display. But we have to wait, of course, to see what happens with the announcement in the fall. Now, the iPhone 14 is expected to get improvements to the wide-angle camera, but once again, the Pro models are expected to get significant upgrades. We've heard about the 48-megapixel wide-angle camera update that is supposedly coming. Apple's going to use a technology called pixel binning uh, to allow it to take 12-megapixel shots. That will preserve image quality in some situations, like low light, because one of the problems when you up the amount of megapixels is that they struggle in low-light situations, but they have technology to kind of deal with that. But we're also expecting in the Pro models some significant upgrades to the telephoto camera as well. So that should get a lot better. And all of this could result or is likely to result in the increase 
of the size of the camera bump, according to a report from Mac Rumors. They're saying that leak specs indicate that the height and width of the camera bump on the Pro models is probably going to expand by about 5% in each direction, and the depth of the bump will increase from about 3.6 millimeters, which is what we have currently in the iPhone 13 Pro, to about 4.17 millimeters in the iPhone 14 Pro Max. A few other things on the upcoming iPhones. Rumors this week showed that there's probably going to be, well, there always is a new color every year, right? But this year, it's looking like it's going to be purple for 2022. And uh, so I would expect two different colors probably for the non-pro models versus the pro models, which we've seen before. Generally, the the non-pros, I think, tend to be a little bit brighter and the pro model is a little bit more subtle, a little bit more subdued. So I would imagine kind of a deep purple and then maybe more like a light purple lavender kind of color for the pro model. So should be really nice. I'm a big fan of purple. So I would probably go for that model if that's this year's color. Now, all of this stuff, right? We're hearing, hey, the non-pro models, probably not going to get as many updates as the pro models. Apple's really going to try to differentiate the two models. We've also been hearing that uh, there's going to be some changes to, likely some changes to pricing. It gets a little bit confusing because it's not really clear if Apple's going to up the pricing across the board or if you're only going to see upgraded pricing on the pro models. So a source out of Korea claimed that Apple had made a decision at the top executive level to keep the iPhone 14 base price set at US $799. So that would be the same price point as the current entry-level iPhone 13. Now, not the iPhone 13 mini, because that's, I think, about $100 cheaper. But remember, this year, Apple's not going with a mini model. They're going to the max. So you're going to expect the base model, what used to be the iPhone 13, is going to become the iPhone 14, and that will be your new entry-level model and priced accordingly. Meanwhile, analyst Ming-Chi Kuo thinks that Apple could increase the average selling price of the entire iPhone 14 lineup up by about 15% this year. And this would be because of supply chain issues, the economy, all that stuff that's been going on. They're just going to do a price adjustment, and this is the year that they're going to do it in. So that could mean the starting price of an iPhone uh, iPhone Pro model pushes up past $1,000 US. If this happens, I would suspect that Apple would do the typical thing that they do, pushing the starting price point of each model in the lineup up about 100 bucks, maybe 200 bucks on the Pro models. I'm not really sure. They've done this in the past. It's been many, many years since Apple's done a price increase to the iPhone lineup. So with all of the stuff happening in the world, it does make sense to me that this could be the year they decide, hey, we need to bump prices a little bit. Not going to be great for us as consumers. I'm not really happy about the idea of paying, you know, quite a bit over $1,000 for an iPhone Pro model, but we could see it happening. So if it does, looks like to me, iPhone 15 could come in at a starting price of about $899, an iPhone 15 Max at $999. Then you have the Pro models, and I'm, I'll be really curious if this price increase happens to see if Apple does do a $100 jump or $200 jump. At $100, it seems to confuse, in my mind at least, the market a little bit. iPhone 15 Pro at $1099 US, and then an iPhone 15 Pro Max at $1199. And these, again, would all be the starting prices for, you know, starting storage. Uh, And we'll just have to wait and see on that. Now, on the storage side of things, uh, even with the updated pricing, there is kind of a debate on whether or not Apple will up the base storage model on the Pro models, increasing it from 128 gigabytes to 256 gigabytes. Now, originally, analyst Jeff Poo and the research firm TrendForce agreed that this year Apple would up the storage, the base level storage on the Pro models, bringing it up to 256 gigabytes. But now Poo has revised his prediction and thinks that Apple will continue to offer the same storage options as they exist on the current iPhone 13 Pro models this year, or this past year. So again, starting at 128 gigabytes, even though the price might be going up. And I guess Apple just feels like the extra features and functionality that they're going to build into the Pro models 
are enough to justify these price increases. So we'll have to wait and see how consumers react to that. We'll have to wait and see how, you know, you and I react to that. But that seems to be the plan at this point, at least according to all the rumors that we have. So that's kind of the latest on the iPhone. Now moving over to iPad and specifically iPad OS, we're hearing from Bloomberg's Mark Gurman that it looks like iPad OS might be delayed, the launch of that. Apple talked about it at Worldwide Developer Conference. It was supposed to be coming out in September along with the updates to iOS. Apple may delay that now. And a possible reason is that Apple needs a little bit more time to work out some of the bugs and issues they're encountering with the new stage manager feature that is limited to M1 iPads. Apple, this would give them a little bit more time to focus on the iOS release in September. And then this push actually might even align better with some rumored and projected updates to the iPad Pro line. We're expecting new iPad Pros with M2 processors. Those are likely not going to come out even until around the September timeframe. That would give more models or additional models that were available to use the new stage manager feature and Apple could kind of work out the kinks. So I think this is actually a good strategy, even though they kind of announced and showed off, you know, stage manager as this big new feature. If they're struggling to actually get it working and functioning the way that they think it should for consumers, and there's been a lot of feedback, too, in the community. Um, We've heard a lot of feedback from people in the early betas that are getting a chance to use it, and I think it's just not quite fleshed out. It looks nice and slick, but in day-to-day usage, I think Apple's getting a lot of feedback, and so hopefully they're going to take the time to take that feedback and really kind of hammer out the features and functionalities of this, maybe even improve it a little bit based on the feedback they received from the betas. And that's the whole part of the process. So I think this is a good call on Apple's part, even though it might be a little bit frustrating for people who are looking to get their hands on this great new feature. So we'll have to wait and see what they do there. Apple is already prepping, apparently, its iPhone and iOS event. Again, this is according to Mark Gurman. He says that Apple has already started recording and producing segments for the announcement, alluding to the fact that Apple will likely do another virtual event versus resuming in-person events at Apple Park. I think a lot of people were hoping this was maybe the year we were going to get back to in-person Apple events. They could use an approach, I guess, uh, where they would do the similar thing they did with Worldwide Developer Conference, inviting select members of the media to actually watch the recorded event at the theater, probably at the Steve Jobs Theater at Apple Campus in Apple Park. And that way they could invite those folks into the hands-on area to check out the new products and produce videos and get all that stuff out to consumers a little bit earlier. So I could see that actually happening. We are expecting two events in the fall, this one in the October timeframe, and then another event in September that would focus or sorry, the September event would focus on the iPhone and the Apple Watch, and then a second event in October that would be more Mac and iPad focused. So those are all upcoming. And then despite some mixed expectations from analysts, it sounds like Apple is very, very optimistic about the demand of their iPhone 14 models. Most reports we're hearing from the supply chain seem to indicate that Apple is targeting between 90 to 95 million units at launch, which would indicate they're expecting demand at least as strong as they saw for the iPhone 13 models. That to me is very interesting considering these rumors that the price point might be a little bit higher, especially in the given economy. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this does, and especially considering the fact that This is considered by many to be kind of a talk year. So we talk about with iPhone releases, tick and talk. The tick years are where we have big, you know, redesigns and big feature enhancements. Talks tend to be a little less of that. Now we have some significant updates, especially again on the pro models like we just talked about. So maybe Apple's thinking this is a little bit bigger and demand will remain high. It's certainly sounding that way from how they're kind of positioning looks like the supply chain and what they want to have on hand when they actually make their announcement. So are you super excited about this year's models? Are you going to be buying one? Are you holding off? I'd be curious to know from those of you in the community, you know, is this a big year? Is Apple maybe overestimating demand 
uh, this year. To me, it feels like they might be. I would think it would come back a little bit, but sounding like there's no signs of slowdown, they're getting ahead of the supply chain, and maybe that's part of it too. So we'll have to just wait and see on that. And then finally, a nice little enhancement that showed up this this last week in the betas of iOS 16. Looks like Apple is going to bring back the battery percentage ind- indicator on most devices, you know, currently you can get the percentage of your battery, but you need to swipe down into the control center. They're going to put it back up on the battery icon. This update actually overlays a number on the battery indicator without the percentage symbol. And another little weird thing about this is that the battery doesn't, the battery icon doesn't actually go down. It always shows a full white battery icon when you have this percentage uh, turned on and just gives you the number up there. Some people are kind of complaining about that or think Apple could do it a little bit differently. They obviously still have some time to tweak it, so they could do that based on feedback. But this feature is going to work on most iPhone models from the iPhone 10 series up. The exceptions are the iPhone 13 mini, the iPhone 12 mini, the iPhone 11, and the iPhone 10R. Now, this is seemingly due to the differences in screen resolution. All of these models have the notch. So I thought the fact that the iPhone 11 and iPhone 10R were not included in the list with the iPhone 10, since the iPhone 10 was, was a little bit odd because the physical screen sizes on the 11 and the 10R are actually slightly larger. But what I had forgotten was that the iPhone 10 actually has a higher pixel density, a higher resolution. So it's 2436 by 1125, whereas the iPhone 11 and iPhone 10R have a resolution of 1792 by 828. So it looks like Apple's making the decision purely based on the resolution of the screen, not the physical size of the screen. And that actually makes a lot of sense. So if you were confused by that like I was, hey, maybe that explains it. But that's kind of the latest uh, that we know about iPhones and iPads and what might be coming here up in September. Turning to a little Apple TV Plus news, I've already mentioned here on the podcast the upcoming Apple TV Plus film, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is being directed by Martin Scorsese and stars Leonardo DiCaprio. That film is actually based on a nonfiction book by David Gran. It's about the murders that took place on the Osage Indian Reservation in the 1920s. Well, apparently Scorsese and DiCaprio must be fans of Gran's work because, according to Deadline, they're already teaming up to make another film based on one of his books for Apple TV+. This time it's called The Wager and is based on a on, you know, his book called The Wager: A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. This is the story about the shipwreck of a British naval ship called The Wager and the crew's struggle for survival on a deserted island off the tip of South America. So, should be pretty interesting. I like these kind of historical films that are based in fact, and uh, obviously Scorsese and DiCaprio, amazing stars, so it should be very, very good. We don't know when this one's going to be coming out. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon, I know, has been in production. We don't have a date on that one yet either, but I believe it's coming out sometime in 2023. Apple continues to pursue sports content for Apple TV Plus. As a matter of fact, Friday Night Baseball, which is already on Apple TV Plus, continues to be free in September. It's available to anyone. No Apple TV Plus subscription required. You can get it through the TV app or via Apple's website at tv.apple.com. But they're also looking to break into college sports, it sounds like. We've actually heard this before, specifically with the Big Ten Conference. Apple's been attempting to get something going there. And now this week, there's a new report from The Atlantic saying they're continuing to pursue that. The report says that at least part of the broadcast rights, which I think has been with ESPN, have already been won out by Fox, but they're looking at other networks to kind of take on that portion of the stuff. But they're also looking for a streaming partner, and Apple wants to be it. Sounds like the deal will be something similar to Friday Night Baseball, where Apple has the rights to kind of one night of baseball, and it would be similar with the Big Ten Conference or the Big Ten Colleges. They wouldn't show every event, they wouldn't stream every event, but they'd likely have a specific day of the week that they would launch. 
Amazon, it sounds like, is also vying for that business. So Apple's in a little bit of competition. We'll have to wait and see how that works out for them. And then according to The Hollywood Reporter, Apple TV Plus is going to be getting a new A24 documentary about the life and career of comedian Steve Martin. According to the report, the documentary is actually going to be a two-part piece and production has started, but there's currently no title for the project nor any release date. So we're just going to have to wait on that one. But I love Steve Martin, big fan of his work, actually really enjoying uh, Only Murderers in the Building, which is the new show on Hulu with Martin Short, another great comedic actor who I really, really respect. It's great. If you haven't caught it, uh, definitely check it out. But man, that guy is talented. And uh, I look forward to a documentary about his life and career. I think that's going to be really, really cool. And then kind of finally in the news for this week, we have a little smorgasbord uh, kind of potpourri of a bunch of different little stories, little bits of information on potential upcoming products from Apple. We have a reported leaked schematic and CAD render from My Smart Price, supposedly showing some of the planned updates for a new 10.2-inch entry-level iPad. Things to note about this is that the shape mostly remains the same, and it still appears to have a home button, presumably Touch ID. It does adopt the new flat edge design of the more modern iPads and appears to be slightly thinner. But the most significant change, besides the USB-C connector, uh, which will replace the Lightning, and I think this is the last model that still has a Lightning connector, last model of iPad at least, is that it's going to have a rear camera bump, something that that version of the iPad has not had. Still a single lens, although it is that kind of oblong pill shape. There is a second hole under the camera, and the report seems to seemed to allude to that it could be a true tone flash, but the hole, if you actually really look at the CAD rendering, is pretty tiny. So most reports kind of think that's likely just a mic hole. So the camera bump probably there because they're trying to make it thinner, and I would assume the camera components just don't fit in that thin of a casing. We could also probably see some of the more recent camera improvements, which I think also require a slightly larger camera sensor. So makes sense. Oh, and I guess the last final thing is that it does look like Apple will be finally removing the headphone jack from that entry-level iPad. And just a reminder, some of the previous rumors we've been hearing about this one, slightly larger display, A14 Bionic, and Apple bringing 5G support to the entry-level iPad. So that's probably going to come out along with the iPad announcements in or around October, so expect that there. There's also a report out of Makatakara that Apple is planning a new 4-pin connector for the next iPad Pro models, though surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, they don't have any information about exactly what it be would be used for. They just claim that there's going to be this new four pin connector on the top and bottom side edges. Speculation is it would be for additional peripherals, maybe third party peripherals. I would assume some kind of new smart keyboard, although I don't know why extra connector. Um, outside of the connector, they also say the iPad will have and this is the iPad Pro again, will have the same housing design and chassis design as the existing iPad Pro lineup. Again, we're expecting new M2 processors to, you know, replace the M1s in the current versions of the iPad Pro. So those are coming again, probably in October. And then Bloomberg's Mark Gurman continues to contend that Apple is planning a new HomePod that will be closer to the original. We've talked about this a little bit. In addition to being bigger and having more speakers, it's expected that it would have an S8 processor, same processor that's in the Apple Watch Series 8, and would support the new Matter technology, uh, which is the new open smart device communication technology being adopted by Apple and Amazon and Google. So all of your smart home devices are going to connect. Uh, it's based on uh, a lot of the technology Apple developed for HomeKit. They're all in alliance together. So this is ultimately a good thing, more interoperability amongst our smart home devices, more security, all of those things. So looking forward to that. Uh, the addition this time around is German is also predicting that there's going to be an update to the HomePod Mini, uh, but none of these are, updates are expected before 2023. 
And then German is also chiming in on an upcoming new Mac Mini Pro update. Now, originally, you might remember that he believed that Apple was planning an M1 Mac Mini Pro, basically the Mac Mini M1 with an M1 Pro processor in it. He says that idea has been scrapped by Apple and that they're going to be moving forward with M2 updates for the Mini, including an update with an M2 Pro processor. Again, expect that likely in 2023, although I guess there's an outside chance we could hear about that in the fall as well, but I'm going to say more likely 2023. And then we have Ming-Chi Kuo, who continues to think that Apple could announce their mixed reality headset in early 2023, and he says maybe as early as January. He says it will be Apple's next, quote, revolutionary consumer electronics product after the iPhone. So he's kind of bullish on it. He thinks it's going to be pretty amazing. We've already heard that the first version is going to be expensive and Quo believes that Apple will price the first generation of the device somewhere between $2,000 and $2,500. Because of that, he also thinks that Apple will not sell likely more than about 1.5 million units in 2023. But remember, we are expecting Apple to iterate on this design pretty, pretty quickly. This first one likely to get out there in the hands of early adopters and developers, see what they do with it, see what directions they take it in. And then as Apple does with a lot of their products, they'll adapt design, they'll adapt functionality to kind of meet what consumers are looking for. Quo is predicting that in 2023, Apple will also switch the connector on all AirPods and their charging cases to USB-C. Wow, surprise. You know, we're moving to USB-C, I think, across the board. The iPhone's probably going to be the last place we see that, but I would expect that to be coming in the next year or two as well. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank our show sponsor, and that is ZocDoc. You know, if you've listened to the show for a while, you might know that I am a pretty big fan of board games. I love to sit down with my family, break out a game like Settlers of Catan or Ticket to Ride, and just have a great time. But really, one game I don't like is the Hurry Up and Wait game, especially when I'm not feeling well. We've all been there when you need to see a doctor and you're trying to get an appointment, but it's all booked out. You can't get anything. You end up waiting weeks, if not months, to get an appointment. It's incredibly frustrating and not helpful. And that's why I use the ZocDoc app to find a quality in-network doctor who can see me within days, not weeks. ZocDoc makes it easy to find quality doctors in your network and in your neighborhood Plus, with real verified patient reviews, you can find the right doctor for you. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. On ZocDoc, you can find every specialist under the sun, whether you're trying to straighten those teeth, fix an achy back, get that mole checked out, or anything else, ZocDoc has you covered. ZocDoc's mobile app is as easy as ordering a ride to a restaurant or getting delivery to your house, Search, find, and book doctors within a few taps. Find and review local doctors. Read verified patient reviews from real people who made real appointments. So now, when you walk into that doctor's office, you're all set to see someone in your network who gets you. Go to ZocDoc.com, find the doctor that's right for you, and book an appointment in person or remotely that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I'm one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to find and book a quality doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MattCast and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MattCast, ZocDoc.com slash MattCast, and a big thank you to ZocDoc, for their support of the show. Okay, what do you say we try to help a couple folks out? I'm going to do my best here, and I'm going to have you as my backup for sure, because I've got a couple stumpers here. And basically, we've got people calling in, hey, MacCast, I need your help. They're using the new MacCast bat signal, Apple shortcut, iOS shortcut that we have. If you missed that, it was covered on the last episode of the MacCast, but you can find it in the show notes for that episode. Uh, 
in at, over at maccast.com. So you'll find the link for that if you need it. You can also just email me. I'll happily send the link on to you if you didn't get that or if you missed that episode. But we have Rick who emailed in and he says he wants to know if it's possible to make a file invisible on Mac OS. And the reason for this is that he uses an encrypted disk image or a series, it sounds like, of encrypted disk images to store his tax information. And he wants to also be able to hide those on his system. And I just want to do a little aside because I guess this is going to be a two-for-one tip. I covered this a long time ago on the MacCast, but I think encrypted disk images are a excellent way to store sensitive data like tax records on your Mac. And they're great because you can create them and set them up locally. You encrypt them locally, so they're already encrypted on your device. And then when you have backups via Time Machine on a local drive, cloned backups, NAS backups, or even when those encrypted disk images get backed up to the cloud, they're secured. They're backed up encrypted. So it's a great way to protect that data, even when it's kind of out of your hands or if your hard drive were to get stolen, something like that. So I actually use this technique as well. I have an encrypted disk image that I store all of my sensitive documents on. As a matter of fact, for my paperless library, so where I scan in all my bills and records and stuff like that, that's all on an encrypted disk image as well. Keeps it nice and secure. And they're super easy to create. You just need Disk Utility, which is built right into your Mac. So if you go into Applications Utilities and launch the Disk Utility application, you can create one by going under the File menu, choosing New Image, and then selecting Blank Image. Now, if you're on a modern Mac with the most current operating system, I recommend choosing Apple File System, so APFS, doing a single partition GUID partition map, and then selecting the sparse bundle option. And what's great about the sparse bundle option is for the size, you can pick the largest amount of storage you think you're ever going to need for that disk image, depending upon what you might store in there. So, you know, pick an appropriate disk size. And then what's great about a sparse bundle in that image format is that regardless of the size you choose when setting it up, it's only going to use storage equal to the amount of data that you've put into that disk image. So even though you might say, hey, I want a 500 gigabyte disk image, if you only put 10 gigabytes in there, it's only going to use up 10 gigabytes of storage. Now, the important thing to know about creating disk images, though, is when you set them up, with this sparse bundle, you need to define the maximum size. So it'll never grow over 500 megabytes. You'll basically run out of storage at that point. So you kind of have to think about it like almost like a virtual external hard drive, even though it's actually a file that sits there on your back. So just be aware of that when you set up the limit. Um, and then for the encryption, you just need to select the encryption option. I'd like to choose 256-bit AES encryption because that's the strongest. You could go with 128. Both are strong and secure, but obviously 256 is going to be better. And it will prompt you at that point to enter an encryption password. Now, make sure you make this password secure. And very, very important, do not forget this password because if you do, you're not going to be able to get to your documents and files. You're not going to be able to decrypt that encrypted disk image. That's the whole point of making one, right? So I recommend using a password manager like 1Password or LastPass to store that password. And also it will ask you if you use iCloud Keychain if you want to store that in there as well. I like to store it in there because it's convenient. Uh, It means when you're logged into your Mac, you can mount that disk image without needing to re-enter your password or enter that encryption password. It's just stored securely in your iCloud Keychain. If you are going to use that option, though, make sure you're using a unique secure password on your Mac because if you're logged into your Mac, you would have access to that. So if someone can get into your Mac, they could potentially get into your encrypted disk image if you stored the password for that in your iCloud keychain. So just be aware of all that. You know, we're talking about security here. The whole point is to secure our documents. So to actually use the disk image, once you've set it up, you mount it like any other external disk on your Mac, and then it'll just show up in your finder 
just like any other disk and you can add or remove files to it. You can also eject the disk and you can remount it simply by double clicking on the disk image file that's on your Mac. Now you should note again when that encrypted disk image is mounted and you've unencrypted it, it is in the unencrypted state. That's why you can copy and move files to and from it freely in the finder. This normally shouldn't be a problem, but generally when you're done using it, you do want to eject it, which puts it back into its encrypted state. And uh, if it is mounted on your desktop, you're going to want to make sure that when your Mac goes to sleep or you shut it down, it goes into a password state. Because again, if someone were to walk up to your machine at that point and you had it mounted, they would have access to those files. So again, just another thing to be aware of. Um, and, uh, when using these images. So wanted to point that out now on to the original question. Sorry for that side, side tangent, but you know, I don't know that everybody knows how to create encrypted disk images. So back to Rick's question, how do I hide the encrypted disk image now? If I want to not let anyone see that on the Mac, it's actually fairly easy because Mac OS is Unix-based, and in Unix, you can hide any file or folder by just giving it a name that starts with a period. So doing that will actually hide it. Now, if you try to do this in the Finder, by default, Mac OS is not going to allow you to do this. It's going to display a warning saying that you're not allowed to do that because that's reserved for system files. Now, you can get around this by enabling the view of invisible files in the finder. And there's actually a keyboard shortcut for that. So if you type command shift period on your Mac, that is going to actually show all of the invisible files, including all these files on your Mac that begin with a dot in the file name. Once this is turned on, I'm giving you this tip. So likes like, uh, I don't think it was specifically Spider-Man that said this, but it was his uncle, right? With great power comes great responsibility. So once you turn on invisible files in the Finder, be very, very careful because it's possible to see everything. And many of these files are critical system files, files that are needed by your system to be able to operate. And if you move, delete, or modify any of these files, you could actually damage your system. So use this tip carefully. But once you've enabled invisible files in the Finder, you can create or rename files or folders with a dot or a period at the beginning of the file name, and doing so will make it invisible. As a matter of fact, when you have the invisible file view on in the Finder and do that, Apple will tell you, hey, if you if you name this file in this way, it's going to be invisible. Are you sure, sure you want to do that? And you have to click OK. Once you've done that, it will create that file. And then just type Command Shift period again to turn off viewing invisible files in the Finder. And then any items that you've named like that are going to be no longer visible in Mac OS. And you can always get back in by toggling this back on. So you'll know the little secret, Command Shift period to toggle on and off visible or invisible files and maybe somebody else won't so it's not you know you already have an encrypted disk image so chances of somebody actually getting into that file is really really slim to none unless they somehow get your password but if you want to take that extra step and hide it from prying eyes this is how you can do it so rick i hope that helps you out now I have one from Ash and this one to me it's a little bit of a stumper. Ash says I bought a new M1 MacBook Pro three months ago. When using an external Apple keyboard and trackpad my cursor randomly jumps to a new position in the dock by itself whilst I'm typing. The issue goes away he says when all peripheral peripherals are disconnected but again, he's using an Apple keyboard and trackpad. So it seems to be related only to external devices. It doesn't happen when he's using the built-in keyboard. My first instinct 
effect was to tell Ash to check the trackpad settings and specifically the tap to click option, making sure that that is turned off or maybe a little bit less sensitive because I've done this myself. You're typing on the keyboard and if you have tap to click turned on, you can accidentally bump the keyboard or the trackpad rather, click it and it can jump your cursor somewhere and you know it gets a little bit confusing. I don't think that's what's happening here, again, because he says, hey, this only happens when I'm using external devices, and I'm assuming if you're using a magic trackpad, you don't have it like located below your keyboard or in a space where you might bump it. I guess maybe with your pinky you could, depending upon how close it is, but I'm assuming that's not what what's happening to you, Ash. My other idea would be to check any accessibility settings, specifically mouse keys, and Mouse keys is an accessibility feature that allows you to control the cursor with your keyboard. So if you accidentally enabled this, maybe that's what's causing the cursor to jump around. And you can accidentally enable it by uh, using the default toggle for it, which is tapping the option key five times quickly. And you'll get a little kind of heads up interface when it turns on or off, but you might not have noticed that. So if mouse keys is turned on, that could be potentially the problem. So that's definitely worth checking and then the only other thing that i could think of would be maybe a stuck or sticky command key on your external keyboard because uh, there are keyboard commands uh, for moving or keyboard shortcuts for moving the cursor around on your mac like moving it to the start of a line or end of a line um, jumping word by word by word all those sorts of things moving to the top of the page or the bottom of the page right there's all these ways you can kind of control the keep the cursor in a document using the using command keys so maybe the command key stuck stuck down and when you're hitting another key it's causing the cursor to jump i don't think this is probably the case because i think a lot of the cursor move shortcuts involve the arrow keys and i wouldn't imagine that you're kind of toggling around on the arrow keys but just another idea that i had now those are my thoughts ash kind of emailed me and said i think this might be a bluetooth issue and for that i think we need a little bit more information because you said you're only using apple devices i doubt it's a bluetooth issue unless you have some sort of weird third-party bluetooth controller in there or bluetooth software in there that could be conflicting or interfering I wonder if you have any third-party peripherals that maybe have Bluetooth drivers or other third-party software that might be messing with Bluetooth. So that's another idea that I had. But that's where I'm landing. (laughs) That's what I have for you, Ash. So maybe someone in the community, maybe one of you knows what this issue is and has this problem, and that's why Ash sent out the uh, MacCast bat signal. So community, I turn to you. What do you got? What ideas do you have? Shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, mattcast at gmail.com, and we will try to help Ash on this confounding issue. And then lastly, I have another one from Tim that also confounds me, maybe a little bit, but we might have an answer here. I'm going to do my best. He says that he's having issues with videos sent to groups via iMessage sometime sometimes arriving as tiny videos. He says this happens when he's sending to a group chat where everyone is an iPhone user. And he says it happens whether he's on Wi-Fi or cellular. And he's seen many posts online about it, but no actual fixes. So he says, MacCast, I need your help. MacCast community, I need your help. What is going on here? How can I fix this? And I do know that this is something that can happen if you're in a group chat with members who are not on Apple devices or not on iPhones, specifically Android phones. And it's because Apple uses SMS to send messages to non-Apple users. And in that scenario, the videos will get crunched down very, very small. It's actually one of the reasons why Google and many carriers are kind of pressuring Apple right now to adopt the newer Rich Communication Services or RCS standard, which doesn't have these video limitations. Uh, that's a whole nother topic and we can maybe dive into that. I don't want to get into that now, but that's what's going on there. Now, in Tim's case, like I said earlier, he confirmed that all the members in his group chat are all iPhone users. So you wouldn't expect this to be happening. So my next suspicion was that messages 
probably adjusting the video size based on the quality of the connection when the video is uploaded. So if the connection is slower at the time it's uploading or you're on cellular and it's a slow cellular connection, maybe it's crunching things down and sending a version that's more appropriate for the connection speed. Apple tries to help out like that. And maybe that's also happening on the download side. I don't really know. Uh, Tim kind of says he doesn't feel like that's the issue either because he sent videos via his home Wi-Fi. He's got a decent connection and it still arrived tiny. Now, again, I'm wondering if maybe the issue then becomes on the receiving end or maybe just right at that moment when you were sending your Wi-Fi connection was having a slowdown at some point for some reason and it just crunched the video down. So that's the only thing I can think of. But at the same time, I experienced this behavior as well in my own family group chat recently. My daughter sent a video and again, it came on, it came across smaller sized, smaller, you know, lower quality. And so I can definitely confirm the behavior happening. I just don't know exactly why. So with a lot of my personal theories seemingly blown <laughs> by Tim and the back and forth that we've been having, I'm stumped. And once again, that's where you in the community come in. Do you have ideas on this? Have you experienced it? If you've experienced it, do you have a solution or do you at least know why it's happening? I'm going to continue to do more research on this and maybe have a follow-up of my own, but let's use the hive mind, the power of the MacCast community and help each other solve our little annoyances and problems. And I really appreciate it. I look forward to your emails and your audio comments, maccast at gmail.com. But with that, that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for hanging out with me. Before I leave you, I do want to take a quick moment and thank uh, some of my supporters, including Cashfly. They provide bandwidth for the MacCast, and you can find them at cashfly.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. You can find them at backbeatmedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to find me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. So pretty much MacCast everywhere. And that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.